Thank you for joining us and for listening to our podcasts. We hope that this may enrich your walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. There are some doubts here, uh, some questions that I want to answer before we continue, just in case other people have the same questions. The first one is, when... When will the witnesses of God remove the governors of this world? Will that be during the three and a half years of ministry or after the second coming of the Lord? The Lord is waiting until all of his enemies are put under his feet. So the governors of this world who are wicked will be Put under his feet. That doesn't necessarily mean they will be dead or even removed from their office, but they will be under the control and the power of God's people, the church, uh, as Pharaoh was. And then finally, they will be removed. Another one, another question. Do we need all details of our doctrine confirmed in the five sections of Scripture? That is exactly the opposite of what I teach. What I teach is we need all of our doctrines confirmed by those five places, but not all of the details all of the details of every doctrine. For example, the Bible from Genesis to Revelation shows us that the Messiah will give his life for us. But in the Old Testament, there's only one detail, as far as I know, about how he will die, how he will give his life, and that's on a cross. The Bible, you don't need five details, five scriptures to give all the details. You don't need five scriptures to say that he will raise Lazarus. Details of his ministry. Details of the doctrines related to any subject. Not the details, but the doctrine itself, yes. We need five places. Do we have other scriptures that confirm the calendar of the end times besides Daniel 7? I don't think I have mentioned Daniel 7 in this seminar. But do we have more scriptures to confirm his coming other than Daniel 9? Absolutely, I've already given you some. If you want everything that I have presented, then Final Victory has it. I told you at the beginning I'd only give you two or three scriptures, right? Uh, We can't go into all the details. However, I plan to give you two or three more examples of the timing. Daniel 1 is just one scripture of many that shows the timing of the last days. Mm -hmm. 
this person might be concerned that we don't have enough basis. I'm sure, I, I assure you we do. However, it's amazing. Almost the entire body of Christ has doctrine about the end that is almost the same, slight variations. But the entire thing is based on private interpretations of one verse. We're going to look at it. I mean, that is a scandal. Don't you think? That's tragic. That's horrific. We're going to see it. <clears throat> Isaiah 45.13 states that Cyrus was the one that built up Jerusalem. <clears throat> Does this contradict what we understand that it was during Nehemiah's time that Jerusalem was built again? We need to make sure we allow the Bible to interpret the Bible and not allow our own ideas and interpretations to enter in. Cyrus, well, let's start with the 70 weeks. I have never heard or read of any evangelical theologian that does not understand that the Hebrew word there Weeks refers to seven years, a week of seven years. That's a biblical fact. The first time that particular word for week is used, it is stated clearly it's seven years. So we're talking about 490 years total between Daniel and the second coming, time when they are independently governed uh, within and um, Gabriel told Daniel from the command to build Jerusalem so you got to find a command true Cyrus never commanded anyone to build Jerusalem. Cyrus commanded the temple to be built. Cyrus reigned from 539 to 530 BC. And the entire scheme of the 70 weeks is only 490 years. So how could Cyrus have anything to do with Daniel's 70 weeks? It's true that in Isaiah 45, 13, Cyrus is called in the Hebrew, and this is disturbing for some, but in the Hebrew, Cyrus is called the Messiah. And it goes on to say the things the Messiah will do, and he will build the city of the Lord, the Lord's city, Jerusalem. We don't know if Cyrus himself and his kingdom did anything 
toward building Jerusalem. But we know that his command to build the temple was not even obeyed. They went back to Jerusalem in 536 B.C. And by 520 B.C., 16 years later, the temple was still not built and Cyrus was dead. And in 445, about 95 years later, the condition of the city of Jerusalem was that there were no gates and there was no wall and it was in disarray. So Cyrus didn't do too much in Jerusalem. He didn't even get the temple built. But he did command them and allow the Jews who wanted to to go back and live in the Holy Land. And they didn't all live in Jerusalem by any means. It says they all went to their own cities all through the country. So Jerusalem was far from being built under Cyrus. And this uh, question says, uh, <clears throat> it was during Nehemiah's time that Jerusalem was built again. We must find answers uh, about that in the, in the scripture, but Zerubbabel, it says here, this question was placed as the governor of Bible Jerusalem. Zerubbabel is never said to be the governor. The governor of the entire area, the Bible says, was Tatnai, not Zerubbabel. He was an, a Gentile. He was the governor of that whole area. And when they did go back to build the walls of Jerusalem, the city itself, there was enormous pressure attacks from the Gentile world around them. It was a difficult time. And uh, they didn't build the temple because of the enemies. That's what st stalled them. And they had a hard time building the wall and building the city. And the reason was clear. It's in the Bible. Again, the Bible has to interpret the Bible. The enemies of Nehemiah and the enemies of the rebuilt Jewish capital city, Jerusalem, wrote to the king Artaxerxes, who sent Nehemiah to build the city. He gave the command to build the city, not Cyrus, many years before that's the only place there's a command to rebuild the city in Nehemiah. And the enemies recognized what a rebuilt city would mean. They wrote to Artaxerxes and said, if they're allowed to build their capital city, they didn't call it capital, but their city, then they will be an independent and rebellious nation once again. Independent. And, well, they, they didn't put them in those words, but you can read it. That's in modern English. That's what they were saying. They're going to be an, a nation again, and they're not going to pay you taxes because they're a rebellious people. Well, 
that wasn't true because Nehemiah was loyal to the king also and the king of heaven. Amen? He was rendering to Caesar what was Caesar's and to God what was God's. And that's what we're supposed to do, right? Amen. So there is no way that the, the uh, time of Cyrus is in any way linked with the 70 weeks, which is only 490 years. Okay? Now we want to look at where the church will be in those last three and a half years, because according to the popular, most popular doctrine, the church will be raptured out of the Great Tribulation. The glory of God's church in the last days is found in many places of the Bible, prophetically and examples of it. He will not take the church out of the world to escape problems. Rather, the church will be victorious over the world. And all the world will know that Jesus Christ is Lord. And what Moses did in the beginning will be repeated in the end. All the enemies will be brought down in many different ways. But many of them not killed, but humbled and powerless. Ephesians 5.25-27 tells us, that Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy, and listen to this, without blemish. Today, the doctrine says you can't live without sin. We're all sinners, and we're going to sin up to the last day of our life. He's coming for a church that has no blemish, and that refers biblically to sin. We're going to conquer that which is sin in us. Is this the condition of the church today? What do you think? Not the condition of the church today. The church is divided. It's lukewarm. It has a name that it lives, but it's dead, the Lord says. And the Laodicean church is sure that of itself, it's rich in spirit instead of being poor in spirit. It needs nothing, according to Jesus. We're on our way to heaven. Don't, don't confuse me with the facts. We've been involved directly with pastors and leaders and sheep from over 100 denominations. So we have a pretty good idea of the condition of the church. The world knows also it's immorality after immorality after immorality. The world has no confidence in the church. The world 
I'm talking, when I say the world, I mean millions of lost sheep of the house of Israel. God sees them as lost sheep. They will respond to him if they get a chance. But he's not going to bring them into the churches of today. His sheep, no. And that's what we're waiting on, a revival first in the church. We're expecting, uh, the Lord says that he will send Elijah before he comes and he will restore all things. Specifically, Elijah is the one who restored true worship in Israel when the entire nation was worshiping Baal, except for 7,000, a little tiny remnant. People laugh at Elijah because he thought he was the only one that hadn't bowed the knee to Baal. Uh, I don't think we should laugh too hard. When God said to him, Elijah, I still have 7,000. I think Elijah, instead of saying, oh my, did I, was I ever wrong? I think Elijah, after that meeting with God, said, <clears throat> no wonder I felt alone. 7,000 in the planet? God Almighty, and you only have 7,000 people? I, I now understand why I felt like I was the only one left. <laughs> I was one of the only few that are left. <clears throat> Some of us might think, well, you know, I mean, think about Hebrews, something I don't think. Well, Hebron thinks it's the only, only church, the only organization. <clears throat> I know other people that have the vision. They're not part of Hebron. God has a remnant. But what we need to understand is Jeremiah said that his message was an example of how it would be in the last days. Imagine, he was the only messenger in all of Israel that had the truth. So don't, we shouldn't act like, well, they think they're the only ones. No, we don't. We don't think we're the only ones at all. And we don't think anyone here should be puffed up or proud about what God has given us. But we should be thankful. Amen. Amen. I'm thankful, personally. I, I don't deserve it. There's nothing I have that God didn't give in his mercy and kindness Whenever God has given me a fresh truth, it's usually when I would say more than ever, Lord, if ever there was a time in my life that I don't deserve something fresh and new from you, it's now. Oh, <laughs> you do it because you have mercy on me. No, it's not that we think we're the only ones, but what we do recognize is the multitude has almost never been right throughout history. The multitude crucified the Lord. The multitude wanted to kill Moses and Aaron. Right? The multitude has almost always been wrong. And today, the church multitude is more wrong than ever. With heresy for their doctrine.
and their way of living and their worship. It's the prophets of Baal are running the church. And they're making lots of money doing it. It's not a glorious church without spot or wrinkle. How are we going to get there? Well, Paul had an idea. (laughs) No, he heard from God. (laughs) Right? And he went to all of his churches, and he gave them a very encouraging message. This is in Acts 14.22. That we must... Enter the kingdom of God through much tribulation. That word is the same one as the great tribulation. Acts 14.22. We must enter the kingdom of God through much tribulation. And the church today says we're going to escape it all. John John the apostle begins writing the revelation saying... I am your companion in tribulation, but don't fear, you're all going to escape by the rapture. (laughs) No, he didn't add that last part. He said, I'm your companion in tribulation. Well, I I would like to be a companion of a man like John, wouldn't you? Amen. How will we become the Shulamite, the perfect one without blemish? No spots or wrinkles. Peter tells us, he says in 2 Peter, I'm sorry, 1 Peter 4.1, he says, For as much then as Christ has suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. For he that hath suffered in the flesh hath ceased From sin. Oh, but we can't cease from sin. Well, the church is going to, and I hope we're part of it. Amen? But it's going to require much tribulation, where we're going to seek God with all our heart, and not feignedly, not presumptuously, not naming it and claiming it. I want to give you some Biblical proof that the church will be here throughout the Great Tribulation. And the purpose of the church being here is not only to be purified, but it is to purify the earth, to conquer the enemies of the Lord. The church will have the authority, the power, and get the victory. Matthew 24, verse 14 through 16, Jesus says, this is, he, the disciples ask him to explain how the end would be. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. <clears throat> Who will preach it? We've already seen. Not newborn Jews. It will be the mature sons of God. 
And then he says in verse 15, when ye, therefore, that's, he's talking to his people, not to the world. And the, Paul says the Bible is written for God's people, not for the world. <clears throat> the world doesn't have interest in the Bible. <clears throat> when ye, therefore, shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy place, then look up because you're about to be raptured. No, I'm, I'm adding words. <laughs> the, the words that the church adds. When ye shall see the abomination desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet stand in the holy place, then let them which be in Judea flee into the mountains. <clears throat> What does Judea mean? The Greek word means the land of the Jews. He doesn't say, let them that be in New York flee to the mountains. Let them be in Mexico City flee to the mountains. No, let them that be in the land of the Jews <clears throat> flee to the mountains. And in the prophetic word throughout the Bible... We can see different places where the mountains speak of nations. And the Bible says that in the end, the Jews will again go into captivity among the nations. At the very last part where they're under great pressure. <clears throat> so, by the way, the mountains in Israel, I mean, me, my wife and I lived there. They, it would be a joke to flee to them. First of all, they're just little hills compared to the mountains of Mexico or even the Rocky Mountains. Just small hills. But also, they're almost barren. Very few trees. They're not thick woods. So if we were to flee to the mountains in Israel, the enemy would just go with their machine guns. No people left on that mountain. <laughs> no, that... They'll be fleeing to the nations. <clears throat> Let's continue. If the abomination of desolation is <clears throat> simply a pig or some other unclean offering on the altar of a rebuilt Jewish temple, which is what the popular doctrine says, why can't they even go into their house? The Lord says, don't even go into your house to get anything. <clears throat> if you're on the roof, flee and don't even go in to take anything out. When the abomination desolation comes, <clears throat> oh yeah, can you imagine? Some evil man over at this new, newly built temple is putting a pig on the altar and you can't even go and grab your coat? It's so dangerous. <laughs> what, what both Daniel and Jesus says in Luke 21, it will be because the armies will do what the... He doesn't say it this way, but it, I can paraphrase it. Around the entire nation, he says, they'll be surrounded on all sides, and they're going to do what Hamas just did on every border. 
and they're going to fall quickly. The Bible says that very quickly. It says one, in one hour, maybe that's just symbolic or maybe it's literal. In other places, it says in one day. <clears throat> there are ten details that Jesus gives about the abomination of desolation <clears throat> between Matthew 24 and Luke 21. And he refers us to Daniel. So all ten of those details should be found in Daniel. And you know what they are. From Daniel 11, 31 to Daniel 12, verse 1, is the entire scenario of the abomination of desolation. And it starts in verse 31 with armies. Not with the Antichrist offering a pig on a temple, on an altar, or some other clean animal, unclean animal. For more proof of the abomination of desolation, you can check on the final victory, but there is no, and also Daniel uh, 11 study in both Spanish and English from the Bible school. The abomination of desolation is in a holy place. Is that true? When you see it in the holy place? Well, shouldn't Daniel tell us what the holy place is? Or or are we supposed to imagine that it's a rebuilt Jewish temple that is going to have a holy of holies or a holy place? That is total, pure speculation. We'll see it a little later. I think we should let Daniel tell us what this holy place is. And the only holy place in the entire passage in Daniel about the abomination of desolation, the only holy place is the holy city. The holy place. That's the only holy place he mentions in that context of the abomination of desolation. Well, and that's what Revelation gives us an idea about. Revelation 11, chapter 2, uh, verse 2, tells us that for 42 months, that's three and a half years, the Gentiles are ha going to have control of the holy city, Jerusalem. I think that's pretty clear. <clears throat> And of course, when the Gentiles have control of Israel, which it's not just, as I shared before, almost always in Old and New Testament, Jerusalem refers to the entire nation. It's like when we say Washington says, London says, Moscow says. You understand what we're saying? We're talking about nations, not just a city with streets and buildings. The capital, the whole nation, 
And that's what the enemy will control, the whole nation, and conquer the capital. Israel will indeed be conquered again. Then Jesus says in Matthew 24, verse 20 and 21, But pray that your flight be not in the winter, neither on the Sabbath day. For then shall be great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time, no, nor ever shall be. Notice, it says, he says, pray that your flight be not on the Sabbath, or Shabbat in Spanish, uh, Hebrew, on the Saturday. That is proof. He's talking to Judea, the land of the Jews. You know why? For most nations of the world... Saturday would be the best day to flee, wouldn't it? Less traffic, more seats on the airplanes, because they are mostly booked with business people from Monday to Friday. In Israel, there's no public transportation. It's the Sabbath. They, Israel still keeps the Sabbath. Uh, Saturday. No taxis, no buses, airplanes don't fly. You'd have a hard time getting out of Israel. But the worst part is most Israel Israelites or Israelis live in high-rise apartment buildings. And guess what? On the Sabbath, no matter how many elevators there are during the week, on the Sabbath, there's only one elevator that works. You're not supposed to be running out and in and out. You know, on the Sabbath, you're supposed to dedicate it to the Lord. So the, the elevator, the only elevator that works in the high-rise, in any high-rise, on the Sabbath, is the Sabbath elevator. And you can't be doing work. No work allowed. And that includes pushing the buttons on the elevator. <laughs> you might think it's um, inventing this. No, ask, ask any Jew who's lived in Israel. That is absolutely the way it is. There's a, uh, an elevator for Shabbat, and you don't have to work to use it. You get in the elevator. If you're going up, it goes to the first floor, open, second floor, opens the door, closes the door, goes to the third floor, doors open, close the door. You don't have to push the button. It's going to stop at your floor sooner or later, 20 floors up, but I mean, 15, 20 minutes later. <clears throat> All right, but if you're trying to flee, the old people that live on floor two, that can't handle the stairs at all, they're going to get on the elevator when it's going up and it hits floor two. And then floor three, more elderly people. Floor four, that'll be packed all the way to the door. So it'll go all the way up to 20, back down one floor at a time. Nobody else will be able to get on it. So maybe 25 minutes later, another a enormous pack of, of people inside that elevator. If you live on the third or fourth and you're elderly, forget the 20th. If you're elderly, you're not getting, getting out of the building. 
when the Great Tribulation begins, when the abomination begins, that will bring desolation to Israel. So obviously he's talking to the land of the Jews. He knows how it is. Matthew 24, 29, just after he says there will be the greatest tribulation ever, <clears throat> listen to what he says. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, shall the sun be darkened and the moon shall not give her light and the stars shall fall from heaven. <clears throat> By the way, that doesn't mean literal stars. I mean one star and there's no more earth. In Revelation chapter 1, 2, and 3, the stars are the leaders of churches. You can read it. They're the leaders. They're called the angels of the seven churches. But angels in the Greek is simply messengers. And if you look what he says to the stars and to the churches, obviously they're not heavenly angels nor are they fallen angels. They're men, messengers, who are likened to stars. And he says in Daniel 12 that the righteous will be like the stars of heaven. Amen? And some will fall. And doesn't necessarily mean they fall and go to hell. Daniel 12 says some, some will fall to be made pure. And some will fall because they're going to receive a better resurrection. Chapter 20, uh, 24 of Luke, we're, going to, we're reading now immediately after the tribulation of those days. Stars shall fall from heaven. And, the, and we're seated in heavenly places according to Ephesians 2. And the powers of the heavens shall be shaken. And then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. And then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn. And they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds. The clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And listen to what happens. This is immediately after the great tribulation ends. And he shall send his angels, their heavenly angels, with a great sound of a trumpet they shall gather together his elect from the four winds, Mark says, from the earth. Four winds are on the earth. And from one end of heaven to the other. So here we have the rapture and resurrection. He gathers the people from the earth and from heaven, the ones who have already died, his saints. 1 Corinthians 15, 51 and 52 tells us, that's 15, 51, 52, Paul says, Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound and the dead shall be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. The doctrine of a pre-tribulation rapture must prove that Paul made a mistake. I'm serious. 
And I heard, uh, I heard an evangel or a pastor pre um, preaching on the radio years ago. And for one half an hour, he was trying to prove that the last trump is not the last trump. That Paul didn't have it right. I think the last trump's the last trump. Do you? Well, there's a trump, trumpet in Revelation chapter 10 and 11. The seventh angel sounds, and that's when the dead witnesses rise from the dead and are caught up to meet the Lord in the air, in the clouds, and the dead go with him and are rewarded with them. Amen? That's the last trump. I'd like to know if there's another trump in Revelation. I'm not aware of any. Uh, if you look it up in your concordance or computer, you won't find another trumpet after the last trumpet. <laughs> Which makes sense. <laughs> Maybe Paul should have said, second the last trumpet for those who are going in the rapture. <laughs> <clears throat> the greatest enemies of all time, they're going to be resisting what's happening, but it's too late. They're under his feet. Amen. And imagine the, the, the people of God living carnally, lukewarm, in lukewarmness, and we're going to escape it all. God has a much more glorious plan than that. He's not going to show that his church is a coward, his bride. He's not going to show that the church is weak and lukewarm and can't overcome the enemy. He's going to take out of this world a glorious church, a victorious church. Mankind who have followed the Lord will defeat Satan and make a clear statement to the universe that we do not want to live any longer under the power of the God of this world, under Satan and his kingdom of darkness. And we will defeat him to make that clear to him and all the universe. Isn't that more glorious than we're out of here? We're going to escape it all. After we've lived lukewarmly, been part of the harlot because we have so many other loves in this life. We're going to escape it all, and that's all we have to worry about, waiting for him to take us out of here. But we must come into spiritual maturity for this glorious end to happen in our lives. Are we meeting the Lord day by day? Are we seeking him in prayer, in the reading of the Bible? If we want to be ready, we need to be doing it. We need to read the Bible and pray and learn how to worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. Oh, Lord, have mercy on us. Thank you for listening to Hebron Ministries podcasts. Christ in us is the hope of glory. 
We hope that Christ may be glorified in the church. If you would like to know more about Hebron Ministries International, please visit us at www.hebronministries.com. Thank you.